I sort of joked when um, Chris introduced me during the first service because he used those words that uh, you were blessed to have me here to preach to you. And and I uh, joked because I thought it was presumptuous to say that you would be blessed before you hear the sermon. And there's a part of me that still thinks that. But I also realize that preaching a sermon is bringing people of God the Word of God. And the Word of God is always a blessing. So I trust you will be blessed today. I ask that you would hear the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn uh, to the text, Romans 1, 16 through 17, just two verses today. I'll read them and then I'll turn to the Lord in prayer afterwards. So uh, please, if you would, follow along as I read. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is written of God, I'm sorry, for for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, yet the word of God stands forever. If you would please pray with me. Father, as we encounter your word, we do indeed ask you that through your word we would be blessed today. That in it we would see more of you, that we would understand more about the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as your spirit works on our hearts, that your word would then transform our lives so that so that we would be um, more in tune with you as your people and more obedient to you as your people. Lord, we ask that your word would be food for us today. And we ask that we, in fact, would be nourished. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So the verses that uh, we've just read, I might characterize myself as verses which practically comprise the heart of the whole message of Paul as he writes this letter to the Roman church. The Roman letter is indeed uh, a letter about the gospel of God. And it's all about the power of God for salvation, all about the need for faith, and all about the revealed righteousness of God. But I wonder if you've ever thought very much about it, how it could be that 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 one phrase in the 17th verse about the righteousness of God being revealed could possibly convey to some a sense that would lead to dread as much as I'm sure it does for most of us, lead to thoughts of the eternal hope that we have in Christ Jesus. I mean, the righteousness of God should be understood to speak in part of God possessing the quality of an impeccable holiness, an impeccable righteous character. The righteousness of God in one way really does describe his attribute of how he practices and displays perfect justice, always doing right in this world. The perfect justice of God. And for any creature who lacks moral perfection as we all lack, then to hear of that perfect righteousness of the Almighty God being revealed could sound as if it could mean a person is doomed. How could we ever on our own, ever on our own, stand before the revealed righteousness of God? 
when we know the state of our true heart. The moral gulf that exists between man and God in light of human sin is a a great, uncrossable chasm by human beings. And without the work of Christ to bridge that chasm, well, to know that the righteousness of God is revealed could cause a heart to sink, to melt, as opposed to being a heart elated with joy. Many centuries ago, there was an Augustinian monk who struggled with those types of thoughts of dread in regard to the revealed righteousness of God. That monk wrote of how he actually hated verse 17, that when it spoke about the justice of God as the Bible he used would have translated the words we read as the righteousness of God. He had been taught to understand that the phrase about God's righteousness or justice involved the active justice of God being meted out against human sin. In other words, he understood this phrase at that time in his life to mean the righteousness of God as it was being carried out in the form of a righteous punishment against the unrighteous sins of man. When he would read of such righteousness or such justice of God, he would simultaneously then realize that before God, he was but a sinner with an extreme, an extremely troubled conscience. He actually wrote that of this text. He knew his own heart. He knew his own heart even as he was known among his fellow monks to be a man of a seemingly blameless character and a, and a godly devotion. And so he lived inside with that troubled conscience, unsure if God's wrath would ever or could ever be appeased by whatever level of his own righteous living he could offer to his God. And in light of that, he wrote near the end of his life, of that earlier time in his life, of how it was in silence, if he did not blaspheme God, he certainly grumbled vehemently and got angry at God in light of these words. Thankfully, that monk eventually responded by devoting himself to a deeper meditation on those very words about the righteousness of God. He considered them day and night, and eventually as he he did that, he began to better see their fuller context. And so he would eventually come to understand through that deeper meditation that as he read these words, it felt as if suddenly all at once he had been born again and he had entered into paradise. He said it was as if he had entered into paradise itself through open gates as he read these words. Through these very same words in Romans, he began to see the whole scripture in a different light. And he became to love the phrase, the justice of God or the righteousness of God with as much love as before he had hated it. This phrase written by Paul became to this particular monk, Martin Luther, the very gate of paradise itself. You see, it was if through this passage that the 16th century reformer Martin Luther better came to understand that the justice or the righteousness of God will not condemn those who are in fact united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the justice of God 
by which we are justified. It's God's righteousness by which we are made uh, or declared to be righteous in his sight as the righteousness of Christ is actually being imputed to the believer, the one who is in Christ because of our faith in his person and his work. What Luther finally began seeing through this passage, which of course also then brought to mind recollections of other scripture passages, was that while it is true that all humanity will someday stand before the most righteous God, that by faith in Christ, we who believe will stand before God as ones also righteous in His sight. As we are then seen because of the work of Jesus Christ, as ones cloaked in Christ's righteousness. In Christ, we will not be judged on the righteousness we think we might merit by our own works. If we dare to think we can stand before God in that way, we would all stand condemned. We would never, any one of us, measure up. But the righteousness of God that is actually revealed from faith for faith is in fact the very righteousness of Christ himself. The righteousness of Christ bestowed upon those who could never be thought of as righteous on their own. In Christ we gain a righteousness alien to ourselves, alien to our innate and sinful condition when he, Jesus, has been received by us through faith. That was once so elusive to Martin Luther. So so elusive to Luther as his life in a monk that that it's hard for us to, to even fathom that because to us it seems as Christians to be so elementary to us today. But that's because we see it differently because we have the benefit of reformers like Luther. We have the benefit of others who came before us to rediscover what the apostle Paul and others like him had always been teaching. We haven't at least... I suspect most of us here haven't been burdened down by teaching like that which Luther had been taught. Largely, I, I suspect we come from backgrounds that, that um, redirect us to the righteousness of God that is always seen in Jesus Christ and not involved in his active justice, which would then lead to that unrelenting dread of punishment for sin. But even as we now come to a short passage like this on the foundations of Luther's meditation and study and the study of the reformers of old, it still benefits us, I think, to make our own way through these words, to perhaps rediscover through Paul's words, the word of God itself, what Luther actually discovered for himself, that the righteousness of God rightly understood in this context has become for us our very own gate by which we enter paradise. As we think through Paul's words here, we find Paul first expressing to us that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And then he immediately gives a short reason as to why there is no need for any shame when the gospel is in view. He is not ashamed of the gospel for the very reason that the gospel is the very power of God itself. The power of God for human salvation. 
maybe reading or hearing the word gospel this morning will cause us, some of us maybe, if we've read through Romans before, to recall that from the very start of the Roman letter, the gospel has already been central to Paul's focus. The very first words in his letter find Paul identifying himself as being one set apart by God, made holy by God for this gospel. And he asserted there at the very beginning that the gospel of which he speaks so frequently is a gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets. The gospel regarding his own son, Jesus Christ, God's own son, Jesus Christ. I often say to the people of my church, I've said it to people elsewhere too, that biblically speaking, the gospel, which literally means the good news, in one sense could involve very nearly everything, everything that's declared in the Bible. You see, there's this common thread throughout the whole of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, which is showing forth our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, directing us to understand we need that and understand who this Christ is. The former words of the prophets and the words that are found in the Old Testament always are are showing us in some manner when and how He would come, what He would do when He would come. The gospel is indeed what was declared about Christ beforehand. It is the good news of such truths as Jesus' incarnate birth, His perfect life. It's all about His teaching. It's all about His commands to us. It's about His crucifixion, yes. It's about His death. It's also about His resurrection and His ascension. And it's even about His return, which is also about the coming of the kingdom of God on earth in perfection and glory. The good news of Christ is all about His present kingdom, His coming kingdom. And I can't really help in thinking that the way Paul began his letter was perhaps with a purpose of showing forth that sort of broader meaning to the gospel, the the gospel in that broad sense of seeing how everything about Jesus in all of the Scripture is indeed good news for sinners. But now what Paul seems to be doing in this passage that we've read this morning is now specifically refining and narrowing down the purpose for which he writes. And in doing that, the broadness of the gospel starts to be narrowed down into the reason why all biblical teaching about Christ is of such good news for fallen human beings. The gospel, the gospel is good news for us as part of that fallen humanity for the very reason that it is the power of God for salvation, the power of God for our salvation. I think it's interesting, in our Christian world today, we often speak of salvation. We often use words like being saved. They have become so much a part of us that we sometimes speak of them as part of our modern Christian vernacular without ever really thinking what they fully mean. We speak of salvation as if it's so common to us that if we engage the unbeliever, maybe we are leaving the 
uh, unbeliever with unanswered questions because they don't know what we're talking about. They come to us and they hear the word salvation and they start thinking, why do you need salvation? What is it that the Christian sees as being necessary to be saved from? Even within our own Christian communities and our Christian circles, our familiarity with words about salvation without a deeper reflection could cause some of us to fail to grasp the benefits that we truly have in Jesus Christ. I kind of doubt if that was ever possible for the problem uh, for the uh, younger Martin Luther that he ever faced that sort of dilemma of not understanding. You see, when he wrote of the hate he once held for the words of the righteousness of God, his hate was actually rooted in his correct understanding that all of humanity really does need to be saved from something. While at that one time in his life he had a a misunderstanding of how our needed righteousness was actually obtained so that we could be saved by God, he really did correctly see that human sin and rebellion against God and God's perfect righteousness in light of that made it so that Christians, people of all humanity really, needed salvation to be saved from God himself. That might, I think, sound a little odd to us today. Odd to us to hear that we need to be saved from God until we start grasping that a God of perfect righteousness and a God of perfect justice could never simply ignore our sinful wrongs. There would be no perfection, no righteousness in a God who demands obedience from his creatures, but then who just ignores our disobedience. A perfect God as a perfect judge, if he were to ignore our sins, would be full of mercy. That's true. That's for sure. But he would then lack his equally apparent attribute of being a God of perfect justice, a God of perfect righteousness. He can't ignore sin. And that's why our salvation is brought about by a gospel which is the power of God and not through God just passively ignoring our sinfulness. The gospel of our salvation is found in God's willingness, His willingness in the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, to bear the Father's wrath against our sin bearing the Father's wrath so that God's justice is still meted out as it should be against sin, while in the greatest act of mercy, that justice is borne by the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in our place and for our good. Jesus goes to the cross. He experiences the Father's wrath. Remember the account of the Gospels of how Darkness came at noon, a sign of God's judgment. He came to bear that wrath so that we would be spared, spared from what we have merited for ourselves, merited by our sinfulness against God. What do we need to be saved from? Our sinfulness makes it so 
that we need to be saved from God Himself, God in His wrath, a wrath that we by our sin have brought upon ourselves. As I said, Luther's early perception of this verse was missing the fact that we are actually made righteous by God's power through the work of Jesus Christ. But even then, at that earlier time in Luther's life, he was correctly aware that we need saving because all of our faculties have been tainted by sin. And we cannot work our way, our own way, to achieve our own righteousness that is needed to be in the presence of God. That's why Luther had seen the gates of paradise open in this verse as much as he had seen that trouble conscience in his earlier years. He was correctly seeing through the fog of prior misunderstandings that God's wrath could really never be appeased by whatever life of appeasement he might try to offer in his own power. In fact, Luther was so bothered because he knew that as one born a sinner and who remained imperfect even in his best efforts at self-righteousness, that he could never atone for his own human failings. And you know something? We should know that about ourselves too. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. We all need to be saved. Saved from God's holy wrath, His righteous anger against human sin. And let me just add that there is even more to salvation also than just being saved from the wrath of God. We are more positively also being saved to something. Saved to the eternal glory of God. The Lord's work of salvation, you see, involves more than sparing us from the wrath that we deserve in order to give us a new beginning in life. Our salvation from our past sins and our and our uh, present sins and our future sins makes it so that we are spotless and blameless forever after that. So that when God looks upon us who sin, He sees the image of His righteous Son. The work of Jesus Christ saves us to the uttermost. It saves us from all our sins, past, present, and future sins. And so why we are saved from the wrath that we deserve, we are also saved fully. Fully by Christ's sacrifice once for all to live forever, even after our earthly death in the eternal glory of God. Do you see that? We are saved from sin and from wrath, and we're saved to the glory of God. And the more we know the totality of that meaning of salvation, the more we keep the fullness of what it means to be saved in the depths of our hearts, the less likely we will ever be to fail to grasp the benefits we truly have in Jesus Christ because of being in Christ and having union with Christ. The more we know that, the more we will see that our salvation really is something that has been brought about by the very power of God Himself. See, see well in this passage that when Paul speaks of the gospel and explains the gospel as being God's means of our salvation, he does in fact say that it is the very power of God. The gospel is the power of God. 
The very power of God for salvation. And that then gives us other things to think about, doesn't it? You know, when I think of what we read there in those few words, I suppose it's actually possible to read of the gospel being the power of God and suppose too much about what is being said. Now that sounds strange too, doesn't it? But what I mean by that is that I suppose perhaps one could attribute to the words of the gospel message about Jesus whenever they're spoken by a man or a woman, power in the words alone themselves apart from God's working through them. That's perhaps possible. Yet while that might be possible, I think that the greater misperception among some Christians is to think far too little about the power of the message of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. God uses the message of the gospel preached to change lives. Preaching the gospel is not a matter of human persuasion. It's a matter of God's power, of His might. The Spirit of God, through the preaching of the words uses those gospel-professing words to bring God's salvation to human souls. People come to Christ. People are reunited to their God out of their estate of sin and misery. Again, in a saving way through their hearing of the, the gospel, when the Spirit empowers their heart to receive the gospel. And it's even more because the whole world which human sin has subjected to decay is now being freed from its own corruption as the vehicle of the gospel brings sinners into the kingdom of God. God, you see, works in the gospel when it's preached to affect individuals. That's true. But it also affects everything else, everything else about this world. The gospel message of salvation in Christ is God's ordained means of bringing people into His kingdom, sparing them from the guilt of their sin, breaking their bondage to their sinful ways. But it's also powerful in establishing ultimately a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. The gospel is God's power. And God has been using the gospel of Christ to change this world over the course of history before the days of the Apostle Paul, before Christ came incarnate, as people looked forward to the coming of Christ. It was powerful to change lives, turning the world upside down in the Apostle Paul's day. It's what changes the world today. It is at work in our world today. God's might works through the gospel to establish His kingdom. And you know something else? For those who will not receive the gospel, who will not receive it by faith, who will not believe, we still see the power of the gospel. Because those who reject it see the powerful work of God in an everlasting destruction. The gospel, the power of God. It's God's ordinary, ordained means for bringing salvation to all who will believe it. The way Paul puts that here in these two verses is to say that the gospel is the power of God 
for salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. Jew and also to the Greek. Everyone. Just two verses. Just two verses. And we've already seen in these two verses, haven't we, that the gospel is most central to Paul's message to the church, God's message to the church, not just to the church in Rome, but to the church in all places, to the church in in Rochester, Minnesota, of all places. It's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. Not revealed for all of us to dread, but revealed so that we might find the righteousness we need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But we are also being told here that for our righteousness to be gained as we desire it to be gained through the receiving of Christ, that the Christian must also have faith, must believe We gain Christ's righteousness through the instrument of faith. The 16th verse uses that word, believes. In verse 17, we read the word faith. We read the word faith three times in that one verse. In the original language, belief and faith are essentially the same words. They share the same root meaning. So we have four times in just just two verses this emphasis placed on the need for believing. Now numbers aren't everything, I know that. But it's so right to get the message here that faith is of great importance for our salvation, for our to have the righteousness we need to see God. It's by our our faith that the gospel message is received and and believed and 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 trusted in from the depths of the heart. By believing the gospel, we are declared as righteous in God's sight and receive the needed salvation that was purchased by Jesus Christ at the cross. So we are seeing in Paul's brief teaching here that we must place our faith in Christ's person and in His work of redemption in order to receive the benefits of this salvation. As Paul is writing about this faith, we discover that he goes to the Old Testament to give us a glimpse of what he means. He quotes from the prophet Habakkuk. And it's helpful, I think, for us to see what he he means by by having this faith, having a need for this faith, by considering what, what is quoted from Habakkuk in its fuller context. What we find said is that the righteous will live by faith, but in the whole of of the book of, of Habakkuk, what we actually have is a dialogue that's going on between the prophet and God himself. And that dialogue begins with Habakkuk actually complaining to God of the injustices done by the Israelites in the land of Judah, the land where Jerusalem lies. Habakkuk complaining to God says, For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. That's from from the fourth verse of Habakkuk chapter 1. He then responds, God then actually responds to Habakkuk by saying that he, God, will, will bring judgment in light of that injustice that is happening among his people. And to do that, what God says he'll do is to raise up an army of Babylonians to sweep across the whole of the earth in order to punish Judah. Habakkuk 1.6 
and apparent amazement, amazement that God would, would do such a thing, punish his own people in such a grave way. Habakkuk then raises a second complaint. He asks the Lord, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they? What Habakkuk is essentially saying is that we Israelites, well, we might be sinners. But the Babylonians, hey, they're far worse than we are. None of us, of course, are righteous by our deeds, but they, these Babylonians, they are far less righteous people than the people of God. That almost sounds like something that could be said in some churches today, doesn't it? We compare ourselves to others and think we are the ones that are more righteous because of the righteous deeds we do. But then as chapter 2 begins in Habakkuk, Habakkuk stands watch awaiting for God's response to that second complaint. And just before God's response begins, God underscores the great importance of his response, what he's about to say to Habakkuk by saying, record this vision, inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. That's Habakkuk 2.2. And then these powerful words come from the Lord which contain the words that were quoted by Paul to the Romans. The word of the Lord to Habakkuk is this. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it certainly will come and it will not delay. Behold is for the proud one. Again, God speaking. Behold is for the proud one. His soul is not right within him. And then come the words quoted by the Apostle Paul. But the righteous, the righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4. From the context of what Habakkuk is writing, it becomes clear that the righteous one mentioned in 2.4 is a fallible, imperfect man who would experience God's displeasure. But the point that Paul is making by quoting the Old Testament is to say that the Word of God has always been showing that mankind is made righteous not by his deeds, but by his faith. Faith in the righteous one so that the righteous person among us is the one who will live by his faith in the righteous one who is Jesus Christ in fact when Paul quotes the same passage that he quotes in Romans elsewhere when he quotes it in Galatians he specifically explains that no one is justified no one is made right before God by what he tries to do in obedience to God's law. He is only made righteous by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, by having saving faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, believing the gospel, that is the instrument through which the unrighteous people of this world might be declared righteous in God's sight. And it's not because of what they do at all. It's not what we do at all. To be righteous in our thoughts and our outward deeds as good as that seems to be. St- 
still is not enough because we always are not acting in a perfect obedience to the only God. The only one who does that is Jesus Christ, the one in whom we must place our faith. And then when Paul further writes in these Roman verses that the righteousness of God is revealed, he says it is revealed from faith for faith. And I am convinced that his double use of the word faith there is done for the purpose of making it even more clear that although there is human action in regard to trusting the gospel and taking that first step of faith, that there is no human merit even associated with our taking that first step of belief. We don't exercise faith on our own. God enables us. He enables us by our spirit to express the faith given by Him to us. And when one reads these verses then, and when one starts seeing all this that has been expressed together, that is that the gospel of God, uh, of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, and that our salvation comes by God through the instrument of our faith, by His power and not by our works. And that we gain this alien righteousness from God from faith for, or for faith, from, from faith for faith. Well, then we do start coming to see that the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel is no cause for dread for those who believe it. But instead, it is very much, very much the very gate of paradise. We gain salvation from the wrath of God against our sin. And we're brought into His glorious eternity, having been declared righteous by God through the instrument of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Martin Luther came to see. And that is what I trust all of us are seeing here also. And may it be so today, that if you are here and you have not believed this gospel... That this would be the day that through the preaching of the gospel, united with the work of the Holy Spirit, that the words spoken to you come with God's power to transform your life so that you will now believe because the Spirit has enabled you. So that you will then believe and be declared righteous because of your faith and be ushered into the very kingdom of God. If you haven't trusted in Christ today? Don't leave here without talking to one of your pastors. To talk without talking with one of your elders. Talk to me. There is reason for hope because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, for those who do know Christ, let me remind you as well of the way these verses we have read today begin. What does Paul say? He says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Think about Paul writing those words. He wrote those words when he was expressing his desire to go to Rome. Rome, a pagan city, a people, a, a city filled with people of unbelief in order to preach the gospel message. He wasn't ashamed to go. He wasn't Ashamed to preach to unbelieving people. He was not ashamed to go to people who would challenge the message he was delivering. Many of whom would certainly have considered him foolish. Any thought that 
the Son of God would actually come into the world, that would be foolishness to them. That the Son of God would enter this world, live a perfect life, and then die upon the cross. The table that's before us, what does it remind us of? Of a, of a body given, blood being shed, death on the cross. Does that sound like the means of salvation? Not to the unbelieving heart. The heart must be enlightened to it by the Spirit of God. Paul was not ashamed of the message of the gospel. And not ashamed because of, for the very reason that it is indeed the power of God for salvation to everyone who will believe it. Paul would go to deniers. He'd go to philosophers. He'd go bringing a message of hope and not of dread as he was bringing a message filled with the power of God. Outwardly offering eternal hope to anyone who would hear of the only real hope that any human being would ever have for eternity. Not ashamed of the gospel. That was the Apostle Paul. I hope none of us are ashamed either. All of you are going to leave this church today. You'll leave this church. You'll go out into the world to live the rest of your week until the next Sunday comes. You know the world you're going into? It's a world very much like the time of ancient Rome. Filled with pagans of unbelief, worshiping false gods, people who claim they worship no god, people who deny the existence of God, who are skeptics about God, people who think your belief in God is foolishness. That's the world in which we live. That's the Rome in which we live. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. Never. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek, to the rest of the world. And in it, in that gospel, the very righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So that for those who believe it, they sense no dread at the righteous, righteousness of God revealed. Instead, they see it as the gate by which we enter paradise itself. If you would, please pray with me. Father, we have prayed before we came to your word asking for your spirit to enlighten us to it so that the word read and preached would be received by us as if it were life itself. And now having heard the word and preparing our hearts to move on to see that word visibly displayed for us, we ask that, that you would imprint it upon our hearts and our minds. That we would not look at the word that has been received and heard from us, not only on this Sunday, but on so many 
days of our life in the past, not as something that is just, is just invigorating for us, but something that is life-changing for us and impels us to go to a world that is so in need, a dying world that isn't so in need. Father, instill in us this desire not only to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to preach it, to preach it as the power, your power, for salvation of everyone who would believe it. Lord, we live in a world so in need. Use your people by your Spirit to bring the message. And by your Spirit, open hearts to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.